Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast. Each episode within this podcast series, we delve into a different medical topic with an expert speaker to join us. If you want to find more about the Royal College, then please do head over to the RCPE website and have a look at the education stream and see if membership would work for you. It offers a host of educational updates and activities such as the evening medical updates, the Royal College Symposia and many more. Please don't forget, if you listen to our podcast, to give us a rating on one of the podcast platforms or subscribe so that it can come directly into your podcast stream. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Clinical Conversations. My name is Dr. Johnny Bargett and I am a registrar in acute and general internal medicine. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Ganesh Garinathan, who's a consultant physician and diabetes and endocrinologist working in Edinburgh. Welcome Ganesh. Good afternoon, Johnny. So it's a pleasure to be able to speak to you today. And really what I'd like to start off is by saying what we're talking about. Today we're going to be talking about hyponatremia. Why is this so important? And how do we define hyponatremia? Yeah, so we know normal serum sodium is 135 to 145 millimoles per liter. Any sodium below 135 millimoles per liter is called hyponatremia. Why are we interested in hyponatremia? It's because there is evidence to say around 15 to 30% of hospitalized patients have hyponatremia during their hospital stay. And this is by far the commonest electrolyte abnormality observed in the hospital setting. Any degree of hyponatremia causes poorer outcomes and increased morbidity and mortality. For example, a sodium below 125 millimoles per liter is associated with doubling of inpatient mortality. Hence, I believe hyponatremia merits a good discussion in this context. So it's great to be able to talk to you about this today. And as we all know, this podcast is aimed at general general medicine trainees and hyponatremia is such a common occurrence in the presentations that we see coming into the medical unit. Is that fair to say? Yeah, exactly. So as you said, it's clear that if we can help reduce hospital stay or certainly and most importantly morbidity and mortality then I think this is going to be a really useful context for our listeners. I hope that we can touch on how presentations occur, what symptoms the signs patients might have if they come in with hyponatremia and we're going to talk a little bit about how we define it, just a bit of the background basic physiology of hyponatremia or sodium regulation in normality and pathology and then talk about how we diagnose hyponatremia and the different kinds of presentations that can occur and then touch on the acute presentations or the emergency presentations. So with that overview in mind, at a basic level, we've already talked about what is hyponatremia, but what is the function of sodium in the body and how does that come into basic physiology in normality? So just to start with, sodium is the major cation in the extracellular fluid compartment. It plays a crucial role in maintaining fluid and electrolyte balance and blood pressure due to its osmotic action. It plays a role in transport of nutrients and substrates through plasma membranes. It also acts as a critical intracellular second messenger and is also important for excitability of the muscles and nerves. So these are the various roles sodium plays in the inter and extracellular compartment. So we've talked about how important it is both in the intracellular and the extracellular compartments. What regulates extracellular and the intracellular sodium concentration? 
peak. So, sodium levels are regulated by a complex interplay of various systems and hormones. To say the least, the systems involved include includes gastrointestinal, genitourinary, and uh, hormonal systems, which include a variety of hormones. The main two among those being the antidiuretic hormone and the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. So, just to briefly update you that the plasma sodium is much higher than the intracellular sodium, which is around 10 to 15 millimoles per liter only. Potassium is the predominant cation in the intracellular compartment, whereas it's the opposite in the extracellular compartment. So, the main hormone which is involved with the sodium regulation is the antidiuretic hormone, which is released from the posterior pituitary gland in response to an osmotic stimulus. This hormone is released as the patient's plasma osmolality rises above 280 milliosmoles per kilogram. Just to recap, the plasma osmolality varies between 275 to 295 milliosmoles per kilogram. When the osmolality hits above 280, antidiuretic hormone is released as a response and this hormone acts on the vasopressin 2 receptors in the distant collecting ducts in the kidneys where it stimulates the absorption of water and increases this urine osmolality and reduces plasma osmolality. Once the plasma osmolality crosses 290 milliosmoles per kilogram, antidiuretic hormone also induces thirst sensors which leads to an increased fluid intake by a person leading to reduction in plasma osmolality and maintaining the sodium and water balance. To compound this, the renin aldosterone angiotensin system is activated by either a low intravascular volume or low blood pressure. Renin is released from the juxtaglomerular apparatus from the kidneys, which acts on the angiotensin to convert it to angiotensin II eventually. This angiotensin II has two actions. It stimulates aldosterone release from the adrenal glands, which causes sodium and water reabsorption from the kidneys. The other action of the angiotensin II is to stimulate antidiuretic hormone release, which results in free water absorption. Finally, there are also minor actions from the atrial natriuretic peptide and brain natriuretic peptide, which are hormones released from overstretched atria and ventricles leading to water diuresis. I hope this summarizes the net effect of various hormones and systems which interplay and maintain the extracellular solely. That makes really a lot of sense and I think it's important just to really summarize and clarify that I think I've always understood that the antidiuretic hormone secretion is appropriate when the renin angiotensin or renin aldosterone angiotensin system is active. Is that about right? Yeah, so the renin aldosterone angiotensin system is stimulated by intravascular volume depletion, whereas antidiuretic hormone secretion is predominantly stimulated by plasma osmolality. So we've talked about osmolality. What is osmolality and how do you define that in terms of tonicity and osmolality? Okay, so plasma osmolality is defined as the number of osmolatically active particles per liter of plasma. In a 
practical sense, it is calculated by adding two times the sodium level in plasma with glucose and urea. Plasma tonicity defines the number of osmoles which contribute to free movement of water between the intracellular and extracellular fluid compartments. These are mainly sodium and glucose in the plasma, whereas urea do not contribute to tonicity. So the calculation of tonicity is two times the sodium with glucose. That's really helpful just for our listeners and just recapping what it is we're talking about. We've talked about volume status and the appropriate response and normality um, to water regulation. But in thinking about hyponatremia now in itself, what might cause a patient to become hyponatremic? Yeah, there are a variety of causes of hyponatremia, which is quite extensive. And summarizing them into a few groups will make sense and easy to understand. To start with, first of all, we need to exclude rarer causes, which confuses true hyponatremia with pseudo-hyponatremia. A very high level of triglycerides and proteins in plasma can cause a pseudo-hyponatremia, which needs to be excluded first. The second exclusion is a state of translocational hyponatremia, which is caused by very high levels of glucose and some fluids like mannitol in the intravascular compartment which can push the sodium from the plasma and reduce its value. So if you have a patient with very high glucose with low sodium, you should try to correct it to see what is the corrected sodium before we make any plans for treating it. A simple formula you use to correct this is to increase the sodium by 1.6 millimoles per liter for every 5.5 millimoles per liter glucose above 5.5 millimoles per liter in the plasma. So if the sodium level still remains low after appropriate correction, then it is considered a true hyponatremia. So these two conditions of high glucose and mannitol cause what is called hypertonic hyponatremia, as we already explained that glucose contributes to the tonicity in the plasma. So those conditions are treated according to the clinical status and the need for treating glucose. Excluding these, hyponatremia needs to be evaluated based on the clinical fluid volume status of the patient. So all these hyponatremia cause low osmal tonicity, which is called hypotonic hyponatremia. Volume loss in any status like gastroenteritis, third space volume loss or renal fluid volume loss can all cause low intravascular fluid volume with low sodium, which is a separate group. The second group is hypervolemic hyponatremia, which is caused by conditions like congestive heart failure, liver cell failure, and nephrotic syndrome, where there is fluid overload. The final group is the state of euvolemic hyponatremia, which has a vast majority of patients and is the commonest cause of hyponatremia. To exclude a few rarer costs among these is those who take low solutes, those who drink water to excess like in primary polydipsia and beer potomania. Then we have secondary adrenal insufficiency and hypothyroidism as well as 
some drugs, a selection of drugs which can all cause euvolemic hyponatremia. Excluding all other secondary causes of euvolemic hyponatremia will lead us to arrive at a diagnosis of what is called syndrome of interappropriate antitiresis or SIAD. So we'll um, take a step back and just bear all that in mind before we talk about those different presentations. Just so the listeners know what kind of hyponatremia levels we're talking about, how would you define the different stages of severity? You know, is there a mild or moderate, severe or profound type of hyponatremia? And what kind of levels would we be looking at in the bloods? Yeah, so Johnny, as you know, normal sodium levels are anything above 135 to 145 millimoles per liter. A value between 130 to 134 millimoles per liter is classed as mild hyponatremia. Values from 125 to 129 millimoles per liter is considered moderate hyponatremia. And anything below 125 is severe hyponatremia. Some literature do give a value below 115 millimoles per liter as profound hyponatremia. So we've talked about the different gradings of hyponatremia. How might patients present with hyponatremia in the acute medical take? Are there symptoms that patients might have or is there something that the patient might complain of or note that they've experienced and then seek the GP review and then come into the hospital? In your experience, what kind of presentations or situations might patients come in with hyponatremia? Yes, Johnny, as I already mentioned, hyponatremia is the commonest electrolyte abnormality in hospital inpatients. And it's also very common in the community. The symptoms are so varied and vague from the very mildest non-specific symptoms to very severe presentations, which can even lead to death. So very mild hyponatremia often doesn't have much symptoms other than being very vague in the patient presenting to the department. When the hyponatremia is falling into the moderate category below 130 millimoles per liter, they can have headache, a bit of nausea, feel a bit confused, and will have abnormalities in gait and balance, leading them to frequent falls. To give you an example, one in five presentations with falls to the emergency department have coexisting hyponatremia, and one in eight patients presenting with fractures to the emergency unit have hyponatremia as well. So you can see how common is falls and fractures in a hyponatremic patient. The severe hyponatremia patients who have sodium below 125 millimoles per liter can have more severe headache with vomiting, can be more drowsy, uptundered, can present with seizures as well as coma as well as cardiorespiratory distress. So these are such a wide variety of symptoms and some of them are so non-specific, we often ignore the mild hyponatremia which coexists with it. So it's really important just to get an oversight into the different symptoms that patients might experience, obviously from the mild to the more severe spectrum with seizures or decreased conscious level. Obviously we talk about assessment of these patients with an ABCD approach, but how would you assess or approach the patient who you get a phone call about from a doctor saying this patient has severe hyponatremia, moderate hyponatremia, mild hyponatremia. What, what's your general approach when you listen to these referrals and then go on to assess them? Okay, so first of all, I will just check whether the symptoms warrant emergency treatment. 
which is the most important thing to decide instantly. Say, for example, I had a patient who was referred to us from accident and emergency, a 50-year-old man who walked out of the pump after drinking, had a fall and fractured his humerus and was waiting in the accident and emergency. While sitting there, he developed generalized tonic-clonic seizures when he was immediately resuscitated, cannulated, intravenous diazepam given, seizure controlled and a blood gas was done immediately which showed a sodium of 119 millimoles per liter. So this is a severe hyponatremia with significant symptoms which needs to be treated as an emergency. So any symptomatic patient with severe hyponatremia should be treated as an emergency which includes severe drowsiness, vomiting, cardiorespiratory distress, reduced GCS, etc. Apart from these, other patients who are fairly stable needs to be assessed as a non-emergency and you need to work through a proper history, clinical examination, a thorough drug history and assessment of comorbidities, assessment of volume status and then work our way through the algorithm as I initially mentioned depending on hypovolemic or euvolemic or hypovolemic hyponatremia. That's a really good overview of basic approach to these patients. And in my health board, there are really clear resources on how to assess hyponatremia. And that depends on volume status primarily. With regards to the algorithm itself, we've talked about hypovolemic and euvolemic and hypervolemic patients. Are there any tips that you can give clinicians when we're assessing fluid status to help them go down the correct algorithm path? First, um, what I would say is the initial assessment is a clinical examination which will assess the patient's blood pressure, cardiovascular status, peripheral edema, along with all the medications. An urgent paired sample of urine and plasma sodium and osmolalities should be taken as soon as possible before the patient is hooked on to any intravenous fluids which can skew the results. We can then work our way through the results of these tests and assess how the patient is. If the patient is having low blood pressure with symptoms or a very high urea or clinically dehydrated, we are obviously going through the route of hypovolemic hyponatremia. And obviously, if the patient has peripheral edema in the context of either a renal, liver or cardiac disorder, they will be in the hypervolemic hyponatremic category. And once these two are excluded, most of the others fall into the euvolemic hyponatremic group. And their further evaluation will be based on our lab assessment of the paired plasma and urine osmolalities. So that's really helpful. And I guess we could just talk about those different volume states. So I always thought with hypovolemia, we could talk about renal loss or extra renal loss. So extra renal GI losses, skin losses, and then renal losses really talking about drugs, diuretics, renal failure, and other things like diabetes insipidus, be it central or nephrogenic. And then I guess we're going to talk about euvolemic, so thinking about syndrome of inappropriate ADH, and then hypervolemic, thinking about excess fluids through heart failure or liver failure, renal failure, as you say. Using those osmolalities that you talked about, how can we assess what pathology is or what process is likely to be causing the hyponatremia in our patient? Yeah, thanks, Johnny. So the first thing we need to do is to look at the urine osmolality. If you have a very low use of urine osmolality, less than 
100 milliosmoles per kilogram, there are very few conditions which cause this, which will be mainly primary polydipsia or beer portomania when a person can drink more than 15 cans of lager as a minimum. Then those who are living on a tea and toast diet with very little solutes. So those are a category of patients who have very low or very dilute urine. And apart from that, as you said, any nef diabetes insipidus can also give very low osmolality in the urine. So these are all conditions which give rise to low osmolality. If the osmolality in the urine is more than 100, then you look at the sodium content in the urine. If the sodium content in the urine is very low, as you have already mentioned, we have to look for extra renal loss of sodium, like gastrointestinal loss, like diarrhea and dehydration, or a third space loss. And any condition where you have secondary hyperaldosteronism, driving hypervolemia, like congestive heart failure, cirrhosis, and nephrotic syndrome. So these conditions will all cause very low urine sodium and we can work our way through with a history and clinical examination. If the urine so osmolality is more than 100 and the urine sodium is more than 30, then our diagnosis will be based on lab evaluation for hormones and drugs. So we can have conditions like cerebral salt wasting, which is very rare, which happens in the context of subarachnoid hemorrhage, where you will have an element of dehydration with very high urinary sodium. We can have renal salt wasting diseases, where again, the kidneys lose a lot of salt and water and the patient will be a bit dehydrated. Interestingly, vomiting causes high urinary sodium loss, which needs to be borne in mind. Other than this, we need to exclude profound hypothyroidism and hypoadrenalism, both of which can cause high urinary sodium excretion. Once we exclude them with the lab tests, then the what is left with is a uvolemic hyponatremia, which can be considered as a syndrome of inappropriate antidiuresis. That's really helpful. I guess the way I always thought about it was the urine sodium would always reveal the RAS activity. And then the urine osmolality would reveal the ADH activity. Is that right? And how do you interpret those in your definition of an SIADH diagnosis with your osmolalities? Yeah, as I said, if you have a secondary hyperaldosteronic drive from any intravascular hypovolemic state like heart failure, renal failure or liver failure, all these situations have a secondary hyperaldosteronic drive which reabsorbs the sodium and water from the kidneys. Hence, your urine sodium level often is low. Whereas, if you have an antidiuretic hormone drive, it only absorbs extra free water, whereas it doesn't absorb the sodium in the urine. And hence, any of these conditions will cause a lack of antidiuretic hormone causes very low urine osmolality. And we do not need to worry about the sodium content. The higher the sodium content, obviously, the osmolality does go up. But it's a dilute urine which gives more clue to antidiuretic hormone deficiency. That's great. So when we're thinking about our patient who we think is uvolemic, how are we making that diagnosis of, you know, do they have SIADH or do they have adrenaline insufficiency as a cause for their hypoatremia? Although in some cases you might expect a hypovolemic state in our adrenal insufficiency patients. Is that about right? Yeah, so the syndrome of an inappropriate antidiuresis is a state of clinical euvolemia with 
hyponatremia and low plasma osmolality less than 275 milliosmoles per kilogram. This is in the context of an inappropriately high urine osmolality above 100 milliosmoles per kilogram and an inappropriately higher urine sodium of more than 30 millimoles per litre. So often those patients are found to have lowish uric acid and urea levels in plasma. They are clinically uvolemic as I mentioned earlier and the clinical response is often found with improvement by fluid restricting these patients and they do not often respond to intravenous saline administration. The misdiagnosis of SIAD is one of exclusion and we need to exclude any significant renal disease, hypothyroidism, adrenal insufficiency which can be primarily from the adrenal gland or secondarily from the pituitary gland which can all cause a similar biochemical picture. Finally, there are diuretics like thiazides which can present similarly mimicking SIADH as well which needs to be confirmed as well. So that those those are the salient points in confirming a diagnosis of SAAD. That's great. I guess we've touched on a few things there, but just in terms of the history taking, I guess we've talked about drugs, so we should talk about drugs that can alter the interpretation of sodium. What kind of drugs are most commonly associated with hyponatremia? How can we analyze that in terms of our patient that comes in with hyponatremia? Yeah, so there is a very exhaustive list of drugs which can contribute to hyponatremia. So you need to be very, very cautious in looking at every medication the patient is using. But the commonest clinical conditions where you do get SEADH are predominantly pulmonary pathologies like pneumonia, COPD, lung malignancies, central nervous system pathologies like hemorrhages, stroke, tumors, as well as other rarer malignancies which can all contribute to SADH. So, excluding all these, we have a big group of drugs as we talked about. The commonest of them which are implicated in SAD are the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors used for treating depression like with the likes of citalopram, fluoxetine, sertraline, etc. They are very common and easily likely to be missed. Then, the other groups of drugs are anticonvulsants, the most common of which is carbamazepine. The third group of drugs, as I mentioned, are thiazide-related diuretics. The other groups which are implicated often are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, several drugs belonging to the chemotherapy group, rarely antibiotics like trimethoprim, illicit drugs like ecstasy and some hormonal drugs like desmopressin and oxytocin which are often contributing to hyponatremia. So that's a wide group of drugs and for I've also forgotten opiates which are one of the commonest groups as well as proton pump inhibitors who can which can all contribute to hyponatremia. Those are really helpful tips for our listeners in their assessment of these patients. I guess I'm just wanting to ask if you had any examples or any cases that stick out of a patient with a, a hyponatremia which might have been chronic and an SADH diagnosis was made. So how were those patients managed? You mentioned fluid restriction. How would you go about managing someone with a diagnosis of SADH other than obviously investigating the causes and just sort of touch on adrenal insufficiency as well? Yeah. So the workup is often uh, exhaustive if you need to exclude the full list of conditions we've talked about so far. Uh, but to simplify the workup, 
in a non-emergency sitting, what do I do in looking at a patient with hyponatremia, which may be nearly chronic? First, I will take a thorough history, look at all the comorbidities, all the medications used, and assess the fluid volume status. These are the four main things we need to do to arrive at a conclusion to see whether they have hypo or hypervolemic hyponatremia. If not, they'll all be falling into the uvolemic hyponatremia category. Um, as I said, we look at the paired urine and plasma, sodium and osmolalties, and we continue to exclude some conditions as we grow through this algorithm. We need to have biochemistry supporting our diagnosis where you get thyroid function checked, renal functions checked, and also get a baseline, preferably early morning cortisol sample sent, which will be helpful in excluding secondary causes of hyponatremia. A cortisol value about 300 nanomoles per liter in the morning is reasonably sufficient to exclude adrenal insufficiency based on our audit data from the Edinburgh group. If this is inconclusive, you need to go ahead and do a formal short synactin test where the post-synactin value should exclude, sorry, exceed 430 nanomoles per liter. It may be slightly variable based on the labs. So we've talked about how we assess for adrenal insufficiency. How do you now go about managing the patient that has an SADH? You talked about fluid restriction. What kind of management would you advise for our listeners for this kind of patient? Okay, so once we have a diagnosis of SAAD, we are going to look at whether if it's a chronic low sodium, then we can start with fluid restriction as the first step. The urine osmolality will give us a guide whether our fluid restriction is going to be productive and useful. If the urine osmolality is about 350 milliosmoles per kilogram, the benefit of fluid restriction diminishes significantly and we need to take additional measures to improve the sodium. Whereas in a patient with a urine osmolality of around 200, you will get reasonably good benefit with fluid restriction to 1.5 liters per day or less. If there is no improvement fluid, fluid restriction, despite limiting to a liter per day, we need to add an additional agent, which is more often sodium chloride tablets, which we give around two twice daily or three times a day, which will be added to a small dose of furosemide, 20 milligrams or 40 milligrams a day. This combination works reasonably well in quite a lot of our patients and you can see a gradual and appropriate rise in sodium on this approach. If we are still struggling with improvement in sodium beyond all these measures, we need to use selective agents like demiclocycline, which acts similar to a drug causing nephrogenic diabetes insipidus by clearing free water from the kidneys. It is often used in the hospital setting as if it can cause a degree of renal impairment if it is left unmonitored in the community. Democlocycline takes around three to four days to show its benefit, so we need to wait cautiously to see the response. If all these measures fail, in very selected group of severely symptomatic hyponatremic patients, like those having malignancies contributing to SAAD, we can use the drug group Vaptans, 
which act on the V2 receptors in the renal collecting ducts and causing diuresis by blocking the water reabsorption. Pervaptan is the drug we use and we use it at the lowest possible dose of 7.5 mg a day. We need to be cautious in stopping all other measures of treatment mentioned above like fluid restriction has to be relaxed, democlocycline and sodium chloride tablets should be stopped when you use Tolvaptan as you can see a significant and rapid rise in sodium which can contribute to rapid rise of sodium with the consequences of osmotic demyelination. We need to monitor sodium 8 to 12 hourly at least when we use Tolvaptan. It's certainly Something that I wouldn't be prescribing independently without seeking your advice as the endocrinologist and the specialist, Ganesh. Yeah, daddy, it's under specialist monitoring only and not for gentle use. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's really clear for our listeners. You've just touched on osmotic demyelination. Just for our listeners, what is that and how can we avoid it? Okay. So osmotic demyelination syndrome manifests during a rapid and inappropriate correction of very low sodium. What happens here is that the myelin sheath around the nerve cells are vulnerable and get damaged during this rapid changes in sodium leading to cell death which predominantly happens around the pons region in the midbrain but is also being noted in other regions of the brain of late. Hence this was initially named as centripontine myelinolysis which is now renamed as osmotic demyelination syndrome. The symptom develops around 2-6 to six days after the aggressive correction of very low sodium. It can manifest as paraparesis or quadriparesis, dysarthria, dysphagia, movement disorders, some disorientation, behavioral changes can give rise to confusion and in some very serious situations can cause locked-in syndrome and even death. Most of these symptoms are permanent and it happens in those who are very malnourished, severe alcoholics, those having profound hyponatremia and hypokalemia. So those are situations which you need to be extremely cautious in replacing sodium and we should not allow the sodium to rise more than 6 millimoles per liter in any 24-hour period in this vulnerable group to avoid this syndrome. That's a really helpful overview of the caution that we should take when managing patients with this hyponatremia. I guess we should really talk about the emergency situations. So do you have any example of where someone who's come in perhaps with a seizure or reduced conscious level in the acute medical unit who has come in with a severe or profound hyponatremia and then they've needed emergency treatment. Can you talk a bit about that and where that patient should be managed? Yeah, Johnny, as I already mentioned this example, I'll take the same example of this 50-year-old man who had a lot of beer in a local pub, walked out, staggered, fell down and broke his shoulder, humerus, waited in accident emergency to be seen and developed tonic-clonic seizures while in the waiting room. And after immediate cannulation and diazepam, a blood gas was done for this man, which showed a sodium of 119 millimoles per liter. So this patient has severe symptomatic hyponatremia 
which needs to be treated as an emergency. Emergency management of hyponatremia is with the use of hypertonic saline solution. There are various concentrations of hypertonic saline solutions available in different parts of this world. The common solutions we have locally in Edinburgh are 1.8% sodium chloride or 3% sodium chloride. In an emergency, these fluids can be given through a wide bore peripheral cannula, though the manufacturer insists on giving it through a central line, which is always not possible. So the quantity of fluid we recommend is either 250 mL of 1.8% sodium chloride to be given over 30 minutes or 150 mL of 3% sodium chloride to be given over 20 minutes. Immediately following this administration, a sodium should be checked urgently either with a venous blood gas or an urgent assessment in the lab. And if the sodium has not arisen by 5 millimoles per liter, a second lot of the same volume of solution should be re-administered. This can be repeated twice after the first lot, by which time we should have reached a sodium rising by more than 5 millimoles per liter when we should stop emergency treatment. Further assessment and plans for managing profound hyponatremia will be guided by the patient's baseline clinical status and the risk of osmotic demyelination as we mentioned earlier. On average, we aim for a sodium rise of 6 to 8 millimoles per liter in a patient who is vulnerable and prone for osmotic demyelination, whereas those who are not in that very vulnerable group, you can aim for a sodium rise between 8 to 10 millimoles per liter over a 24-hour period. You need to be extremely cautious by repeating sodium after every lot of hypertonic saline administration and also 8 hourly following that over the 24-hour period. You need to be cautious watching the urine output carefully. If the patient starts to pass plenty of urine around more than 100 mL an hour, you should have alarm bells ringing that the patient's sodium is going to rise very quickly. In which case, you need to be prepared to re-lower the sodium level with some dextrose 5% administration or even the use of desmopressin injections, which should be guided by the local endocrinologist. That's really helpful. I guess one of the things in my trust is that certainly these kind of patients need regular blood sampling and they need often one-to-one -one or one-to-two nursing ratios that sometimes best advocated in a critical care environment, such as the intensive care unit. What's your experience of this approach? Yeah, definitely a high-dependency unit will be very valuable for these sort of patients. And in my local hospital, we often manage patients without a seizure in the acute medical receiving unit with close monitoring by the local medical team. But it's preferable they are in a high-dependency unit when they have symptomatic severe hyponatremia, which needs very close monitoring. That's great. We've talked about it so much and covered a variety of presentations for the patient that might have hyponatremia. We talked about different volume states, hypovolemic, hypovolemic, hypovolemic states, and how we approach the patient and treat them and hopefully make them back to a state of normal latremia. What are your key messages and conclusions for the listeners today? And what would your advice be just in general for our listeners and our trainees who are assessing these patients? Yeah, so the key take-home messages from this 
podcast will be for everyone to be aware that hyponatremia is such a very common electrolyte abnormality that care should be given to concentrate on the sodium levels and try to identify the cause. And SAADH is often the commonest cause of hyponatremia, so looking for the culprit drugs or pathologies causing this and treating the underlying disease is vital for improving the sodium. As hyponatremia has a varied manifestations from being very vague to life-threatening, care should be focused on hyponatremia, which is developed rapidly with symptoms. And acute symptomatic hyponatremia, as we mentioned, is a medical emergency. Finally, caution should be exercised when treating profound hyponatremia, which can cause irreparable damage by developing osmotic demyelination syndrome if they are not monitored carefully. Always seek the help from the local endocrine team if you're stuck. That's fantastic. And I think it has been a great refresher, certainly the management of the patient hyponatremia for me. And I hope that the listeners have learned and, and felt the same. So it's been an absolute pleasure, Ganesh. Oh, thank you very much. I'm very delighted for you to involve me in this podcast and hopefully everyone will get something out of this. Thank you very much for offering this opportunity. Thank you. And to our listeners, please do leave your feedback for Ganesh through the usual platforms and through our new podcast website. Once again, Dr. Ganesh, I'm Nathan. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks, Johnny.